If everything's on the table, it's almost overwhelming and you're paralyzed by the options and you never actually mobilize in a concrete direction. Prudence is for that. Welcome to the Edify podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Edify podcast. Our guest today is Father Gregory Pine, who is a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, which is the East Coast province of the Dominicans, and he is the author of a new book on prudence. Father, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, great for you to be here uh, with us at Edify. Um, So much to talk about. Prudence, um, one of the, the virtues, but only one of them. What led you to write an entire book on it? Um, so, like, short answer is the editor asked me to, um, which I suppose is like the um, unromantic answer. Right. So but, it's like writing something under obedience? Well, the, in a certain or? sense, yeah. Um, it's like uh, there are a lot of customs in the Dominican order for which you can supply that type of response. Like, why do you guys wear hoods? It's like, well, because churches are cold. Um, but also, there are other dimensions to it, like we also wear hoods as a sign of consecration. Uh, and so too with the aforementioned book, because it was the type of thing where I read about it and I was, um, yeah, I suppose I was kind of bowled over by how beautiful St. Thomas Aquinas on prudence, just kind of as a theme, was in fact, because I associate prudence with like, um, what would it be, like financial caution? Um, or a kind of like crippling circumspection. Mm-hmm. And then when I encountered St. Thomas's teaching on it, I found it to be decidedly other. And so I kept reading about it, and then I wrote a paper about it, and then when I had an opportunity to talk about something, and people were like, is there something you want to talk about? They're like, yep, exactly. Um, and so as a result of that, the book came about. Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. Where did you meet the Dominicans? I met the Dominicans in a book. Uh, so I read a book by Louis DeWall, The Quiet Light, and it was specifically the way that St. Thomas loved the Lord mm-hmm. that I found especially beautiful. And because um, you read Lives of Saints right. and you're like, cool for them. Right. Um, and then you think about your own life and you're like, zero application um, insofar as, yes, I want to love the Lord, but I don't know that any of these concrete particulars actually apply to me. Right. Uh, whereas when I read St. Thomas's life, you know, you know yourself to be less intelligent and less holy than he. But there was also the sense in which the shape of his sanctity mm-hmm. had a claim on my life in a way that that of other saints did not. So, yep, I met the Dominicans there. Were you in college at that time? Or, yep. Okay, where did you go to college? I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. Okay, so the reading of religious novels and even historical religious novels, not all that unusual no. at, at Franciscan. And were you already discerning a vocation to the priesthood then? No. When I went to school, my, my sisters had both gone to Steubenville, and they counseled me to not date my first year. Not like I was dating like an absolute monster in high school. Um, but they're like, yeah, just don't date. Make good friends. Right. Rather than maybe you you know meet a gal who's wonderful, and you start dating in October, and you date for three years, and then your senior year, you're like, yikes. I spent a bunch of time with this woman with whom I'm no longer in a relationship, and maybe I could have blah, 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 dot, right. dot, dot, and that sentence elliptically. Um, so they counseled me not to date my first year. And it was cool because it was a kind of like, um, mentality shift, mm-hmm. and so far I was I was making a choice not to, which right. was different than just being in a holding pattern until such time as the occasion should arise. Right. And um, yeah, it was that year I went to a lecture by Professor Eleanor Stump on Aquinas on the Nature of Love, and I was just, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was awesome. Because I knew a couple of things about what holy or smart people had said about the faith, right. but it was like an eclectic hodgepodge. I was like, this person says this, and this person says that. And cool, right? Yeah. Um, but the way that she explained it, it was articulated, and it was wise. 
and it corresponded to my experience, but she was able to enunciate it with uh, a vocabulary and a grammar that really gave you a sense that this, this has, this has purchase, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I picked up that book subsequently, read it, got pumped, dot, dot, dot. Okay. Well, what's the dot, dot, dot? You went to the vocation director yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or you, yeah. you know, so I had a friend who had knocked on the door at a monastery and said, let me in. Exactly. Um, yep. So I broke into the monastery and I claimed a room <laughs> and I said, if you kick me out, I will kick you out. And they're like, you petulant child, leave the premises. Um, no, I, uh, I had a friend who knew a gentleman. Well, I knew he knew one of the men who had entered the community and he was to be ordained a deacon. So he invited me along and then I talked to the vocation director and I yeah, started making periodic visits. But at the end of college, I was thinking that maybe I should grow up um, because it seems like an advantage. Uh, so my parents very much esteemed uh, the priests whom they found to be responsible. Okay. So like men who at the end of a meal would offer to help with the dishes or RSVP'd and then kept their word or wrote thank you notes mm -hmm. or, uh, yeah, you get it. Um, and then they were unimpressed by, you know, young priests who seemed entitled and immature. Mm -hmm. And they're like, don't be like that. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like what the deciding factor was, was that a lot of the ones whom they found to be responsible had worked for a bit. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, maybe I will pursue this course. And so I was planning on it. And then it was impressed upon me in a series of encounters that that was just too... Yeah, kind of worldly prudence. It wasn't the prudence. The Lord so it's almost like working for the sake of working. Yeah. Without any, yeah. you know, end goal in mind. Yeah. Other and than and life experience, sense. right? Yeah. And like a vocation is a thing that you hold in earthen vessels right. and you can't presume upon the management of it. I mean, right. it's God's right. to give and God's to shape. Well, so you've written this book on prudence, I which have. is, um, again, you know, one of the virtues, I think, when you're thinking about the virtues, prudence isn't one that automatically comes to mind as the most important, but when you do a deeper reflection, it's it's so critical to so many things, is yeah. it not? I mean, to virtually every other virtue. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So there's an ancient teaching about the interconnection of the virtues, mm -hmm. uh, which you find this in pagan philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. There's this sense that either you have them all or you don't have any of them. And the idea is that um, Right, so most virtues that we would ordinarily think of are virtues of the appetites. Mm. So temperance, fortitude, justice, being the three cardinal virtues associated with prudence about which we speak most frequently. Um, and the idea is they regulate your desire for particular goods, right. goods of a particular sort. But prudence organizes it such that you pursue those goods in a fashion that corresponds to the whole of a human life. So it's, it, it forbids a kind of compartmentalization or a kind of stratification of human pursuits, which would pull you apart, right? So it's a humanizing virtue, it's an integrating virtue, um, but it's an intellectual virtue. And so for that reason, it's something that we think about a little less readily because we tend to go for the virtues of the appetite or the virtues of the heart, you know? I mean, just to sort of bring it down to a more, um, I guess, practical level, what would be sort of a typical fact pattern, if you will, that you would use to describe uh, a good use of the virtue of prudence or a proper use of the virtue of prudence? Yeah, I think that with, with college students, I would start with the experience or the phenomenon of uncertainty. So say that you've got a day ahead of you and you have a few things that you want to do with that day. 
But you spend a lot of that day thinking about how you're going to spend that day. Many of us have had the experience where it's like, if everything's on the table, it's almost overwhelming, mm-hmm. right? Like this is an option and this is an option and this is an option. You're right. paralyzed by the options and you never actually mobilize in a particular or concrete direction. So prudence is for that. That's right. basically the reason for which prudence is. Um, it corresponds to that facet of reality, to that experience, to that phenomenon. And what it does is it places certain limits on your pursuits so as to channel them, so as to direct them, so as ultimately, you know, to train them. So say like, you know, today you want to, I'm going to bring a, you know, a hypothetical example that just may or may not correspond exactly to what I have to do today. Uh, you might have to study this or that language in preparation for whatever you know, articles you need to incorporate in your thesis. You might need to respond to this or that email um, because there's business that goes on regardless of what else you've got uh, currently on your plate. Uh, you may need to, you know, call your niece on her birthday. Uh, you may need to pray the liturgy of the hours and a rosary, offer the holy mass, make a holy hour, etc. Right. So, so like, how are you gonna? fit those things in right. given the other demands on your day and prudence isn't just a matter of making a schedule right. right it's a matter of seeing the things for what they are right kind of rank ordering them given the degree to which or the urgency with which they pertain to your life and to your good mm-hmm. and then shaping things in accord with that but also to your vocation correct yeah exactly because yeah I mean, it's, it's about you concretely and specifically right. which takes into account your so vocation your state that, of life the four things that you've just listed for me would be a very different list because I have no obligation to say the hours. Exactly. And you do. Yep. But I do have an obligation to, you know, be kind to my husband and, yep. and you don't. So yeah, so it, it's also you have to take into account your state in life and your vocation yep. and time, you're doing place, that. circumstances. Right. I think a lot of people are are a little bit ill at ease with this idea of limitation, right. but it's just baked into our human experience. You can only be you in this time and in this place and in these circumstances, those all shape your approach to what it is that's gonna happen today. Well, then how do you teach prudence? I mean, is it a virtue that can be taught or or is it one of those things you just kind of have to see it done in practice and then sort of absorb what prudence is? Yeah, so I mean, like the ancient tradition does put a big stress on the example of the wise person. Mm. Uh, It's a thing that you see and it's also a thing into which you're initiated in the setting of family life or political life or ecclesial life. Right, you learn to be. I mean, you learn to be prudent in relationship, which is a cool thing with the ancient medieval tradition by comparison to the Enlightenment tradition, because a lot of us, you know, were kind of downstream of modern political philosophy, where we think about all of our relationships as elective. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like not my president or not whatever. You know, like we're we're always describing ourselves by comparison or contrariety to. Um, When truth be told, it's like no, we you don't choose who your father and mother is. You don't choose which country you're a citizen of, except in rare cases, right? L- what language you learn to speak. Right. So like limitation is just baked into our human experience. And what we get to do is live within those limitations with a modicum of freedom, right? If everything were up for grabs, we would be, again, paralyzed by it. My guess is you're probably often asked for advice, Father, I, you know, I have these choices before me, what should I do? How do I know when I pray that God is helping me to make this choice? Yeah, yeah. That's got to be a pretty common thing, I would think. You know, should I marry this person? Should I, you know, go to this graduate school? How do you advise? I mean, because these are life-shaping decisions. And um, where does prudence come into those sort of things? And how? Um, what's the connection between prudence and discernment? Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking of an email that I responded to yesterday while sitting in the Chicago O'Hare airport, which is a terrible airport because it doesn't have a Chick-fil-A. Um, also because I'm often delayed out of O'Hare. Yeah, so I was there and I was on hold with B&H Photo because my order was on hold 
for like five days because of some financial mismanagement. I think on my part, actually. So <laughs> I assigned the blame to myself. And so I'm there, you know, with my AirPods in, just like fretting about the fact that I might not get these cameras in time for the next recording date. And I received an email from a gentleman who was asking about his vocation. And he was saying, I'm very, like, I'm very inclined to life with uh, CFRs. Um, but like one thing that has me a little nervous is I'm attracted to the intellectual side of the faith. And it doesn't seem like that plays a big part in their common life or their apostolate. What would you say? To which I responded, like, you know, he'd been visiting with this community for a year. He feels great peace. He, he thinks that it's for him. There's just this kind of this hesitation. Right. And so what I said is, I think you're, you do well to become a CFR. I trust their community and the men that I know, you know, who are CFRs are good men. Um, and I think in the 21st century with religious life in the current state, which we find it to be, um, I think that you're, you're, you're blessed to find a good community. And also your intellectual appetites will, on account of the fact that they are consecrated, they are the Lord's, you know, like you don't have to worry about them being wasted because they've been consecrated and the Lord will make use of them in the way that he sees fit. But you're always going to be limited, right? Because if you were to enter another place where they're put more of an emphasis on the intellectual life, you'd lose something that you might have with the CFRs. And so if you continue to pursue this path, but you find that the Lord is ruining your plans and sending you in another direction, then it's worth inquiring into. Mm -hmm. But I think that you have sufficient certainty or sufficient confidence in the present course that you can pursue it and pursue it to great benefit, Mm -hmm. right? And the Lord within the limits of this particular and concrete choice will bless it abundantly. So that's my kind of go-to move. Well, then what what would you say then to someone who has, maybe you're hearing confessions, say, for example, and they um, they have acted imprudently. Yeah. What's the corrective to not acting with prudence? Is there is it kind of a natural self-corrective because it's you know you have to live with the consequences? Yeah. Um, or is there something more that can be done in that regard? It depends on what the failure is. There's lots of ways to sin against prudence. Mm. Uh, so you can be insufficiently reflective, but you also can be hyper-reflective. Mm. Like you can always be mulling over a decision and actually get to taking it. Um, so I would counsel different things depending on the particular sins that are concerned. Uh, so for the person who doesn't reflect sufficiently or who lacks the kind of memory to retain a hold on past decisions and how they have gone, I might recommend journaling. Mm-hmm. For instance, like make a, make a journal notebook, excuse me, make a decision journal or a decision notebook where you write the what you thought about the decision at the time, five sentences, right? And then just revisit it every two months. How did that go? And in what ways did you deceive yourself? You might have said, you know, the last three times that I had X number of beers before going to sleep the day before a big athletic competition. Um, it didn't go well, but this time it will go well because I've trained myself to consume beers at a more alarming rate. So this will definitely, <laughs> you know, it's just like you, we have to become accustomed to hearing ourselves lie to ourselves. So that way we can begin to speak truth back into those lies. So like that might be a way in which to do it. Another For another person who, who takes too much time to reflect upon a decision, I might kind of push them in the direction of a little more precipitousness, right? Or just decisiveness. Say like, give yourself a time limit. All right, so if it's a big ticket item, you might give yourself two days. If it's a smaller ticket item, give yourself two seconds, Mm. right? Do I get a haircut today or tomorrow? It doesn't matter, right? right? Just choose, just schedule it, and then just don't look back. Mm. 
because it doesn't matter. And we can say that about a lot of things in life. Like they don't matter and no one cares. Mm -hmm. And there's a freedom that comes with that. Not to say that we're all closet nihilists and Christianity is just a little patina that we just brush over the fact that we're staring into the void. But in the sense that we assign importance to the things that merit importance, but ultimately that importance is to be found with the people, you know, like with the relationships that we've cultivated, how we've come to discover the Lord in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And you can have intimacy with the Lord regardless of whether you're sitting in the barber chair today or tomorrow. Doesn't matter. What age would you recommend starting to very specifically teach children about prudence? I mean, I think that parents are teaching their children prudence all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Like, do you want one marshmallow now or do you want two marshmallows in five minutes? Mm -hmm. Like delayed gratification is a lesson in prudence because children have to be able to project their lives into the future. Otherwise, they will just be the slaves of their appetites. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see that, you know, like whenever you encourage a child to share, you're teaching the child to enjoy peaceable communion rather than just fighting because the child knows that even if the other party is more to blame than he or she is, that everyone's going to get punished because mom wasn't there at the time to determine whose fault it was. And so she's going to try to be as fair as she can be. Right. So like you, you learn that from a young age. You're always in the school of prudence, but you have to be, you know, reflective, sufficiently reflective on your own experience and on the experience of others to incorporate it into a human culture. Well, I was reading something um, by one of your brother Dominicans, who is now with the Lord, I believe, uh, Father Henry Dominique Lacordaire, who has written on virtue and preached on virtue. And um, this is the quote that kind of struck me about virtue. Love without virtue is but weakness and disorder. By virtue, it becomes the accomplishment of all duties. And that's a really, that's a really sweeping commentary on virtue. Can you explain a little bit more what he what he meant by that. Yeah, so like love uh, takes concrete shape within an order. If love is not orderly, it's chaotic, right? It's just raw sentiment, which is used in political ploys for whatever you know manipulation or control those in power would like to deploy it for. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, without being like too on the nose about it, but like you, you, you think about these tautological claims, which are often trotted out as a way by which to like undermine the dignity of marriage, yeah. right? Like love is love. Like what that does that mean? Good. You know, like, or the fact that like equality is seized upon and leveraged. It's an undifferentiated equality because it has such a raw emotional force, but it's a love that hasn't been disciplined within an argumentation, yeah. right? Because if we tell people that like, do whatever your heart desires, well, my heart desires different things yeah. in different ways. Right. And I need to be able to order those pursuits or I will be the slave of the lowest desires. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, I have YouTube blocked on my computer, mm-hmm. right? And, and why is that? I know that if I spend a lot of time on YouTube, I'll watch sports highlights and I'll watch angry political commentary mm-hmm. because there's nothing so good as just getting stirred up about what right. silly people are saying on this side of the aisle, you know? Right. And so it's just like, I just like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, mm-hmm. you know, because I want to be in pursuit of higher ordered goods. And I know that if I just expend my loves on YouTube, mm-hmm. that they'll, they'll be dried up or they'll be withered. And, and then I won't have the same kind of moral energy to dedicate to the pursuits which are worthy. How long have you had that particular discipline? Um, I don't really know. Would you consider it like a form of fasting or yeah. is it just yeah, yeah, exactly. for you it's fasting? Yeah, for me it's like part of the ascetical life. Okay. So like, like there are good things to be consumed on right. YouTube. Obviously right. I think that otherwise I wouldn't contribute right. to the YouTube okay. mayhem. Right. So you won't even see this, you know. No. Uh, I hope that it goes sad. well. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to let you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so tell me, uh, just, uh, you know, as, as we wrap up here a little bit more about the book, what, what, who is the intended audience? Yeah. Um, I, because I think it's something that could be so useful for everything from confirmation students to, yeah. you know, um, students trying to, to just discern 
uh, a vocation, um, is it written for, at a particular level or is this kind of more accessible to, you know, yeah. um, less educated people, I suppose? My jam, my wheelhouse is like the kind of ordinary 18 to 35 year old Catholic okay. who has some interest in like the intellectual side of the faith. Right. The person is not like studying the faith in a formal way or necessarily engaged in whatever intellectual apostolates, but has a desire for, I would say that yeah, they're at the heart of the church. I want to call each thing by its right name, right? And I want to place that, again, that kind of vocabulary and grammar within an orderly uh, proposal, right? Within like an orderly enunciation of the faith. And so, yeah, I think that, that some people are inclined to that, some people less so. Um, so you're, when you are, are finished with uh, graduate school, which sounds like is going to happen in the near future, what is it you're hoping that you might do what the where the Lord might use you. Do you want to teach? What where do you feel uh, using your gift of virtue of prudence? Um, Fortunately, it doesn't matter placed. what I think. So, so you'll yeah. just be. I mean, do you? I, I mean, the, no, this is just a question I have for uh, about religious life. Are you allowed to um, express a, a preference? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so or in this particular instance, I haven't really. I've been said it's been told to me like you'll probably do this. Do you have any serious hesitations about that? Or are there reasons for which you think that would be a catastrophic failure? And it's like, yeah, of course I do, because I'm involved. Um, (laughs) Right, but like, uh, no, usually there is some of that, but um, it kind of, as you go along the way, it gets more specified, I suppose. But yeah, there's this kind of disposition or a desire to be always available, right? Assignable, eminently assignable. You don't want to make yourself unassignable insofar as you've become hyper-specified or insofar as you've become intransigent. Um, So yeah, I'll probably teach. I'll probably work with intellectual apostolates of my province and beyond. Um, I'm not an especially creative person. I'm kind of like a, like we need a bloodied corpse to throw in front of this onrushing train who is willing to do some work. And I'm like, send me. Since we kind of started with your, with the Catholic novel that seems to have changed your life, or at least given you direction, um, what would, what are your three top Catholic uh, novels. I mean, fiction. What yeah. What are the three that um, you like the most, or you think people should read? Or um, so it's the kind of thing that, like, for me, it just kind of depends day by day by day by day. Right. Um, so Graham Greene, I typically don't like too terribly much mm-hmm. um, because whatever doesn't matter. But The Power and the Glory, I think, is his best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's his most credible, and it's a story of redeemed failure. Which I think, if there is um, something redeemable about failure. Yeah then there's hope for us. Um, so, yeah, I like The Power and the Glory for that reason. Um, I've read a few Evelyn Waugh novels. The one that people recommend most often is Brideshead Revisited, mm-hmm. which I think is a really beautiful meditation on, like, the entanglement of love. Right. So, like, love of friendship and then, like, spousal love or romantic love and then love of God. You see how they, I don't know what the right word would be, like, dovetail or give unto each other. Right. Um, and that when one is honest in love, when one is sincere or genuine in love, that that provides an opening for higher loves. Um, and so, which is, I mean, like the principle behind asceticism. Right. Um, so I'd say Brideshead Revisited would be another keeper. Um, it's a weird book, which I really shouldn't recommend because it doesn't merit recommending, but Man Alive hmm. by G.K. Chesterton. So not a novelist. All of his characters are just themes on stilts because okay. it's clear that he's an essayist. Uh, but that book is just so hilarious. Um, it's one because, I haven't read, so I'll have to... Yeah, the basic uh, premise is like you have out. to lose your life to save it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's... I don't want to give it away because there are four different vignettes. And in each one, you see how your life is effectively saved from a wreck, you know. Or that, um, yeah, it's something that's called back 
from failure or from catastrophe or from death in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So uh, like he leaves his home in order to come back to his home in a kind of cool T.S. Eliot type way or he almost risks his life so as to gain his life, those mm -hmm. types of things. So I'd recommend that. Those three. Okay. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations and Cheers. for sharing your vocation story and your, your wonderful new book. And if um, our listeners want to pick up a copy of the book, when is it published now? And you can just get it on Amazon, I presume. Or And again, the, the title of the book is? Prudence. Choose confidently. Live boldly. Okay. Thank you for being with us. My joy. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.